welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyd. In this episode, I will be sharing an outline of the folklore of June and its pagan and natural roots where I can discover them. This is an episode of a series called The Fair Folk Almanac, where I dive into folklore and paganism from European traditional cultures, mostly Northwestern Europe, with the aim to discover how these practices and beliefs reflect a dynamic relationship with the Earth and its cycles, particularly the bioregional aspects of our human behavior and understanding of the sacred. I do this so that listeners, like you, can find as much inspiration as possible in these episodes to try to build a connection yourself with your own bioregion and the traditions that you desire to engage with as tools for reviving a more loving, connected human presence on, and you could say in, this world. I say that because we tend to talk about being on the earth, but it struck me recently that the discussion of just standing on top of the earth as if we were plopped down here out of the sky is really a strange and disconnecting kind of image, when really we are totally embedded in this system that is the planet called Earth. We are embedded in plants. We're surrounded by plants, many of which are taller than us. We're surrounded by atmosphere and gases, and we're constantly in interaction with the Earth, which is much, much more than a surface, which we go inside, of which we build, and which we come from and eventually return to. Really, the difference in height between six feet over and six feet under is not that great on a large scale. And this episode deals exactly with that dynamic tension of the surface of the earth, the sky, the gases, and temperatures in between, and the element of water, which we can go into and goes into us all of the time, every single day. The holiday of midsummer is just the peak or the most well-known of a general theme of this whole month in folklore that focuses on illumination, light, sunshine, and of course, fire, which is what creates the light we live by. And also, to a lesser extent, and perhaps from an older origin, midsummer is a holiday connected heavily with water and the different implications that water can hold. At this time of year, it appears that water in ritual has mainly the implication of purification, which is a theme and an idea that has gained a lot of weight in the Christian era, implying a desire for purity and perfection, probably more than it meant in pagan times, though it's hard for me to say I was not living at that time. But it is clear to me that the sexual shame element that Christianity has emphasized in this notion of purity, which is 
I believe, common to ritual practices around the world, both in and outside of Christianity. Purification in a pagan context, in my understanding, does not preclude sexual expression or fertility. In fact, in the midsummer celebrations, as we know them now, it very much goes hand in hand with human pleasure and possibly reproduction. I'll be talking about two different events in June. One is called Pentecost season in Christianity. That's Greek for 50 days, I believe, because it's 50 days after Easter. And this season is also known as Whitsun or Whitsuntide. Whitsunday, the Sunday that begins the Pentecost season in Christianity, actually happened on May 28th. But historically, the entire week following this Sunday was celebrated as Whitsun or Pentecost season. After I talk about some of the folklore surrounding Whitsuntide, as it's known in English, I'll turn to Midsummer, which is what we've been calling the middle of summer for quite some time, and we now refer to as the summer solstice. And the word solstice means sol, sister, that is Latin for sun, stand still, because the sun at this time of year pauses at its northern or southern limit before reversing direction in terms of its declination, which is something that I don't entirely understand (laughs) and I've been curious about for years. So if anybody could ever demonstrate that to me in a diagram or something, I'd be really happy about that. I'm assuming it's something about the way that the sun's movement across the sky happens, that it is migrating in space, that is aside from its obvious western direction. Where it appears and disappears in the sky does change over the course of the seasons. But in any case, midsummer is the word for the summer solstice in many places because this is the time of year when the summer solstice occurs. It's the peak of daylight hours. It is the shortest night of the year and the longest day. And midsummer celebrations have not always been practiced on exactly the solstice, or even at all, partly because not everywhere experiences the arrival of the sun to its peak as a distinctive moment in time especially areas that are far north and perhaps in valleys, like in Norway, where a bigger event would be the first time that the sun is visible in the valley in the springtime. I'll get more into the origin of midsummer celebrations and their connection to pagan practice and timing in a little while. This is just to say this episode will be talking about Whitsuntide and Midsummer, and tracking the similarities between them, the connections, in order to paint a picture of the entire month of June as a time of increased focus on sunlight, fire, and water as sacred matter, and sometimes personified as gods or saints. In the Icelandic calendar, which was developed in the 10th century, the name for June was 
sol malnudir, literally sen month, but many of the earlier Scandinavian calendars would refer to this simply as summer month. In Old English, June would be called Eireliza, that would be before midsummer or possibly first summer, and July would then be Eifteraliza, after midsummer or second summer. And the word Liza or Liza has been used among modern pagans to refer to midsummer itself as a calendar festival, imagining that Liza was the ancient name for the festival, which in my research I found has been unlikely. The word itself means calm or peaceful or good weather in reference specifically to the fact that it was good weather for sailing, which is what in the Viking era, the late Iron Age in Scandinavia, a lot of people were doing in order to trade and sometimes pillage. This is also a good time for fishing, I imagine. It's interesting when we think about the way that things were named in the past, it's not necessarily the way that they're named now. And especially Germanic languages, in my experience, uh, tend to be just merely descriptive of what the use value of something is. English has such a complex etymological history where we don't understand the meaning or the origin of most of the words in our language. But studying Icelandic and Swedish and other languages that are not so complex and layered and synthetic, as in like mixed, a lot of words are repurposed in other words in ways that are just very straightforward. Like one of my favorite examples from Icelandic is the fact that the word for computer, tolva, comes from the words for number, tala, and witch, vulva. So a computer is a number witch. This is the same with the way that we refer to periods of time in the past as tides, just like Whitsuntide, because time was measured by the way that the ocean moved. Time is visible. Time happens in traditional cultures in a tangible way, not just because we marked it down on a calendar. So litha means calm or navigable. Seas, that is. Which is quite lovely, actually. And I have no problem with people calling this season or this holiday by that name. But it might be more historically accurate to refer to the summer solstice itself as midsummer, because that's what it is. <laughs> and that's what most traditional names call it. This is the same in Irish. The word for June is mehev, which means middle month, specifically the middle month of summer. The month of June in general, when we speak about its tangible features, is a month of illumination in Northern Europe and the Northern Hemisphere in general. It's a moment of intense light and sometimes heat. It's a moment when the year itself appears to be at its fullest ripeness. And of course, the plants are not yet ripe at this moment in time. 
they are currently absorbing the sun's energy in order to ripen a month or two later, depending on the region that you're in. Summer is a time of energetic intensity. When you experience it as a human, in terms of, say, you're walking through the forest and around you are the leaves on the trees, which are at their very greenest at this time of year. The chlorophyll is very visible. They haven't yet gotten leathery and dry because of the intense summer heat. They're still fresh and sharp looking and filtering the sunlight in a soft and gentle way. And you'll notice that the buzz of insects is all around. There's probably mosquitoes trying to eat you as you walk. Many plants will be releasing seeds at this time of year. Maybe they're flying on the wind in fluff, like the cottonwoods in my area of the world right now, which is northern BC in Canada. They typically release the cotton fluff that they're named for around the solstice time, and it floats through the air, illuminated by the beautiful sun. Water is clear and flowing at this time of year. If there was any snow melt from the mountaintops, by this time it is usually cleared up and it makes it easier to swim. Not to mention, it's also warm enough to enter cold bodies of water, which beautifully reflect the sunrise and sunset if you happen to be awake to witness them. Mid-June is a lot like the in-breath to winter's out-breath, if the circle of the year was the same as the circle of our breath. And of course, it is part of the same system of pendulation, you could say. The natural shift between states of being and the natural balancing out of I want to say energies in the world, though I know that word is used really strangely and abstractly in some circles. But literally, the amount of life energy on the earth is somewhat constant, and the way that it maintains itself is by engaging in this circular and swaying kind of gesture. Back into darkness and sleep, forth into action and light, and all of the degrees in between, equally sacred and necessary. One of the holidays that reflects the sacredness of this time of year, traditionally celebrated in England and in the context of Christianity, is Whitsuntide, and this means White Sunday or Wit Sunday, and there's been some debate about the origin of this word. This holiday derives from Pentecost, as I said, which actually was a Jewish holiday and measured 50 days after Passover. The story is that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus' apostles in the Christian narrative in the shape of tongues of fire, which is very appropriate to this season. And a lot of the Pentecost celebrations in the Middle Ages and since absorbed pre-Christian celebrations from this time or themes 
though this text, obviously, the biblical text is written before that time, the idea of brilliance or illumination, a vision itself, is very well placed at this time of year of intense light and visibility. In England, it's traditional for young women to wear all white at this time, and this may be because of the tradition of having baptisms at this moment in the calendar, partly because the meaning of Pentecost has been interpreted in the biblical context as representing the way that massive adoption of Christianity would occur, people being inspired and filled and visited by the Holy Spirit. That it also makes sense to wear white at a time of increased brightness in a ritual context. This was a big holiday in England traditionally and is still a time when people tend to go on vacation. It's a bank holiday now. The churches would put on and fundraise for large wits and ales. There would be Morris dancing. A lot of celebrations in June in general in Europe have things in common with May celebrations and even earlier celebrations, perhaps April. And this is partly because of the way that Midsummer has been folded into Christianity. Not all places in Europe celebrated Midsummer in pre-Christian times in the way that it's celebrated now. Many of the features of Midsummer celebrations actually, though pagan in origin, would have taken place earlier in the year when the arrival of the new green growth and flowers came, for example, more tangible and impactful environmental changes. But of course, the increase of light and the celebration of fire, animal life, plant life, and fresh, clean water run through the whole spring and early summer season. In Ireland, Whitson was a day with many ritual, folkloric customs, many of them related to protection and purification. It was considered very bad luck to be born on Whitson, so much so that children who were born at this time might be given a false burial. They might have soil put on top of their head in order to prevent and sort of bring about symbolically the potential misfortune that might come to them in the future because of their unlucky day of birth. It was also believed that children born on Whitsun might cause the death of someone else. And so they might be given a insect or other small creature and have it crushed inside their hand in order to complete this destiny that they're believed to have as early as possible and prevent any harm to the community. Specifically in Ireland, there were prohibitions connected to water itself, which is in keeping with the very ancient themes of this month. People, and especially children, might be cautioned to avoid going to the edge of the water or especially swimming. And I've read somewhere that this is because the souls of the dead were believed to be active on that time and would want to pull the souls of living people into the water with them. That is, the souls of those who've died 
in the water. This relates very closely with the idea of the rusalka in Eastern European folklore at this time of year. And I'll quote Yiri Dinda from his exceptional article about this subject, which is very complex, but I'll take his definition for the moment to help you visualize what this figure, this being is in Eastern European folklore, which of course varies across regions. The article is called Rusalki, Anthropology of Time, Death, and Sexuality in Slavic Folklore. Quote, according to the popular folk beliefs, Rusalki are unhappy souls of prematurely or tragically deceased maidens and women who reside in rivers, brooks, and swamps, but they are equally as aquatic as terrestrial since they can sit on the tree branches, run along the fields, woods, and meadows, or visit the homes of villagers. They are almost always believed to appear only in a certain period, the week before or after Pentecost, so-called Rusalia week, Rusalnaya Nedelia. They are deadly and dangerous for men, whom they seduce, tickle, and kill, while at the same time they are associated with the flowering of crops and fertility of fields, rather than with water as such. His analysis of the importance of these young female figures, usually young, who died before their time, before marriage specifically, is that they are an example of what's known as the unclean dead within Christianity. So people who have died before reaching some fulfillment, whether that's baptism or whether that's marriage or whether it was some task that they wish to perform, which is common in Irish folklore as well. And the idea that these young women were taken from life before they fulfilled something that is considered the purpose of their gender, at least at this moment in history, marriage and the ability to reproduce. So thinking of it in terms of fertility metaphor and their connection to crops and water, there are a bunch of themes that hang together. There is this idea of the danger of plants not becoming fertile, not coming to fruition and ripeness that's connected to the fear of death of young people, young men included. And there is something that happens in the time between Pentecost week or Whitsuntide or Rusalnaya and Midsummer, where waters in folklore in general in Europe go from being in some way dangerous or corrupted or associated with the dead and death and a failure of satisfaction or completion in terms of fertility and into purification. There's a threshold that happens in the rituals of midsummer where water becomes purified. Bodies of water become means of purification and fire as well. And this dynamic of bodies of water and purification and sometimes relation to thunder gods as well has other versions earlier in the spring in various places in Europe. There's a dynamic between solar activity or sky activity and the perceived purity of water and water sources and the safety with which one can enter them. There's way more about that than I can say here, but the idea that young women inhabit bodies of water 
in early June and represent death and a failure of fertility that threatens and can haunt the living represents, I think, a process of becoming ripe in nature and the need for humankind to engage in ritual activity to bring about ripeness and fertility in the landscape and in ourselves. It's risky generalizing so much about such a broad theme and one that comes from so deep in the past, but I think it's very compelling, at least, to notice that in some places there's an arc related to water and sometimes fire from the beginning to the end of June that invites us into ritual commemorating or enacting a sense of renewed clarity, a sense of intentional fertility and resistance of the forces of death. I haven't mentioned it yet in this episode, perhaps, but Midsummer is a time of very sexualized expression historically, and there's a sense of preparation for that courtship in this idea of taking care and self-purification that accompanies this month. Though, in fact, the specific rituals of purification most prominent in Midsummer happen at the end of the month, and that is leaping over bonfires and immersing oneself in bodies of water, especially rivers or lakes. So I'll turn to Midsummer now. Midsummer is not celebrated typically on the exact precise solstice, which is the 21st of June, which is what a lot of modern pagans in North America choose as the date to celebrate this holiday, if they do so. In Europe, Midsummer is celebrated on June 24th, with the eve falling the night before. And in most places in Europe, this is known as St. John's Day or whatever variation of that saint's name is in the local language. St. John's birth was placed in the Christian calendar at midsummer because he was understood theologically to prepare the way for Jesus, whose birthday is placed on the winter solstice. So there's a sense of solar balance and prefiguration of John leading to Jesus. And this, I think, is partly because John had his practice of baptism. He had his own sort of ritual cult and followers when Jesus met him and was inspired by what he was doing. And so I think there was an attempt in later years to make sure that it's very clear that Jesus is more important than his friend John and that we're supposed to just think of John as a precursor to Jesus's superior, ultimate importance. The primary ways that Midsummer is celebrated across Europe are the building of large bonfires that people will jump over with various things in mind, often as a prediction of how their year will go, or if you're holding hands with a romantic partner in Slavic areas, you might leap over a fire with them to predict how well you'll stay attached, based on how well you stay attached by the hand, jumping over the fire. This is also the time 
historically that herbs were considered to be at their highest potency. So people would often gather them at dawn on Midsummer, especially St. John's Wort, which in many places is in flower at this time. And also mugwort, which is really particularly associated with St. John, and is an herb that was also known and used in the pre-Christian era. Some folks might do ring dances or other dances either around a bonfire or elsewhere. In the Baltic and Slavic areas of Europe, there's a tradition of going to look for the fern flower, which is a mythical blossom said to appear at midnight at midsummer, growing on the fern. And biologically, ferns don't grow flowers. So this is a magical flower said to imbue a person with special powers like knowing where all treasure is hidden or being able to hear the speech of animals and understand it. In Baltic and Slavic areas, there is a strong, long-standing tradition of making flower wreaths, and particularly for women to wear them. And they would, in Eastern Europe, place the flower wreaths into water, a lake or a river, and the way that they floated away and where they landed could be used as a divination, predicting one's future love life, or there may be a young man on the other side trying to catch your wreath with the same intent. People tend to stay up all night until sunrise, and at dawn, wash their faces in the dew. This is the origin of one of the pagan names for midsummer in Lithuania, rasos, which means dew. In Sweden, maypoles are erected and people will dance around them. And in all of the places in Europe where midsummer is celebrated, there are songs. And some of these songs originate with the midsummer celebration, possibly in the Middle Ages, when it became a big festival connected to St. John's Day. But many other folk songs have found their home in midsummer celebrations all over Europe as this celebration has been revived and regained importance again. I'll share one of the songs that is specifically sung for Ivan Kupala, which is the name of this festival in some parts of Eastern Europe. It combines the name Kupala, which is the older name for the holiday, which describes ritual bathing. And Ivan is the Slavic version of the name John. This is a Ukrainian song that I particularly like, and there are many different recordings of this song. This is a beautiful example. It's called O na Ivana na Kupala, which means something like on Kupala night. Here it's arranged by Oleksa Kabanov. Thank you. 
The question of whether Midsummer is a holiday focused on worshipping the sun is a complex one. It's one that arises just naturally. We assume, okay, this is a holiday for when the sun is at its peak. We must be worshipping a personified sun deity, right? Well, it's complicated. So the reason that we celebrate Midsummer at Midsummer in many regions of Europe or elsewhere is because of the fact that there was a pre-existing holiday there in some places, and this Christian holiday seemed to magnetize a lot of the other festive occasions from the entire time period around the summer and late spring. And when we see revivals of this festival among modern pagans, there may be songs that refer to the sun. For example, in Lithuania, many of the songs sung at Midsummer refer to the sun herself. So the sun in Baltic paganism and in Scandinavian paganism in pre-Christian times was feminine and is still grammatically feminine. Unlike the Latin sol, which is masculine, there's a lot of variation in how the sun is gendered when it's personified in history. And to be clear, the sun is personified in Lithuanian and Latvian paganism. She's called Saule, and many of the myths and stories and songs speak of her as a goddess. But in Scandinavian paganism, in Old Norse paganism, in the sources that we have, there's a lot of variation in how this figure is referred to. Sometimes the sun may be more like a wheel or a non-human object or disc. And other times she's referred to as a goddess by name, Sunna. There is an emphasis in Baltic folklore and paganism on the sun as a goddess being extremely important to cosmology. The word for the world in both Latvian and Lithuanian, pasaulis in Lithuanian and pasaule in Latvian, is literally translated as under the sun or a place under the sun. And when I was traveling in Lithuania and interviewing pagans, several people told me that Lithuanians call humankind the children of the sun. And this emphasis on the sun as a deity is not, at least in the records that we have, as prevalent in Germanic sources, and especially not in Gaelic sources, where there's almost no evidence for a sun deity of any kind, as far as I know. And that doesn't mean that in practice, people didn't revere the sun or engage with the sun in folklore and ritual. There was just a different way of approaching reverence for the sun that maybe could be more carefully defined as animism, as opposed to the worship of a deity. There's an excellent article that came out not too long ago by Thomas Dubois, who is an Old Norse and Baltic Scandinavian historical scholar, about sun worship and the representation or personification of the sun, comparing Baltic and Scandinavian sources and I'll share a link to that in the show notes so you can read it yourself if you're interested in whether the sun was personified or how often in Scandinavian and Baltic paganism. So if you were to attend a reconstructed 
modern pagan gathering for midsummer in Lithuania, for example, you might notice that many of the songs refer to the sun, and then there's many others that refer to St. John. There may be other songs that refer to astral phenomena of other kinds, to oak trees, possibly to birch, to fertility, young men and young women coming together in romance, water, etc. But many of the songs that actually are sung at specifically Lithuanian midsummer celebrations have migrated from other functions in folklore. For example, many of the songs specifically referring to the sun come from wedding celebrations, traditionally, because many of the songs from Midsummer have been lost, partly, but also because one of the primary or common metaphors used to describe a bride and groom is the marriage of the sun and moon, Saule and Menwa. It makes a lot of sense to sing these songs at Midsummer because they both combine this fertility element that's very common in these celebrations and reference to cosmic astral solar deities. I'll share one of the traditional Yoninis songs, that is St. John's Day's songs, from Lithuania, Shvintajona Vakaralia, by the band Nalshia. And this is a group of men singing in a style that is pretty typical in the Baltics, a really beautiful and extremely rich harmony that really gives me the sense of the energetic tapestry that is midsummer in general with the sense of insects buzzing, of like warmth and presence and intensity. If you've ever been in a room with people singing in harmony like this, you'll know that you can feel it like buzzing in your blood. There is a sense of being surrounded by pure life force when you hear traditional singing like this. So I hope that you'll feel the, the joy and life force that's innate in this recording from Lithuania. Again, it's Shvintajona Vakaralia, which means, I think, St. John is having a party. And if you're ever wondering how these things are spelled, I definitely write all of the names of the songs and artists in the show notes, and I include a place that you can buy the track or the music from the artists directly. So please check out the show notes for all of the artists that I name here, if you're interested in purchasing their music. Oh, oh, oh. 
in Latvia, because Latvians and Lithuanians share common Baltic heritage, Midsummer looks somewhat similar to Lithuania. And I mention Lithuania and Latvia at greater length than other places because these places have a much more robust and passionate celebration of Midsummer than you might see anywhere else in Europe, depending on the region that you're in. I don't know. I can't speak for Slavic areas exactly, but there is an incredible explosion of folklore expression and traditional singing, dancing, and dress in the Baltic area at this time of year. And this is partly because in the 1960s, there was a folklore revival in response to Soviet occupation of these areas. And the embracing of pagan traditions was an instrumental part in Baltic self-identification in opposition to Soviet culture and domination. There are in Latvia probably hundreds to thousands of songs associated with this holiday. This kind of song is ancient, at least a thousand years old in some cases. Many of these songs from Latvia feature the word ligua, and historically these used to be sung for the whole period of early summer, I understand. And I've been told from a member of the band Vilkachi, whose song I will share with you soon, that the word is actually Livonian, which is a Uralic language related to Finnish and Estonian. It's not Baltic. And the Livonian people are an ethnic minority in Latvia. And this band told me that in Livonian, the word means let it be or let it happen, which is sort of like a ritual repetition or chant in the songs that feature this refrain, ligua, ligua. So it's like a magical incantation asking for perhaps fertility or perhaps purification. And the example they gave me from a Yanis song, a song from St. John's Day, it might say something like, let the crops grow, ligua, ligua, let the cows grow, ligua, ligua. And there is a song that is one of my favorite midsummer songs of all time. And if you were a Patreon subscriber in the last couple of years, I shared it in one of my Almanac episodes, which used to be private for just Patreon subscribers. This is the song Oezeline Oezeline by Vilkachi, or Oak, Oak, referring to the tree that plays a central role in the midsummer customs there. Just one example of this is the fact that as women would make flower wreaths to wear on their heads, in Latvia, men make these beautiful, lush oak leaf crowns to wear for the celebration. Here is Oezeline Oezeline by Vilkachi, a song that always makes me want to dance whenever I hear it. Tavulia Luras no Minuli Gueli 
There's a beautiful interaction between the two elements or symbols, you could say, that are active in the month of June, the sun or fire and water. The connection between sun mythology and folklore in Indo-European religions, so that is paganism across Europe in all areas that speak Indo-European language in general, the connection between the sun and the water is already there in these early expressions of paganism that we can theorize based on the folklore and mythology that we see across Europe in Indo-European languages, and also the way that the languages themselves are constructed in the origin of words. This is the field of Indo-European studies. So in Indo-European studies, there is an association between the sun and water, and specifically bodies of water, not exclusively the ocean, which you might think, because we're used to seeing the sun rise out of the ocean in history and in representations of the sun, you imagine that the sun might go into an underworld. This is at least how it shows up in mythology, that the sun comes from underground or from under the water and rises above the horizon. So the sun is in a way born out of water. But this has been generalized, if this is the origin of this idea, to associate the sun itself and other bodies of water, which may even be in forests where you would never see the sunrise out of them. And yet they remain connected in some way that is essential. And it could be just a sense of like contrast that the sun and water are sort of in opposition. One is hot and dry and one is cool and wet. But there's also a way in which they both enhance one another, and both in combination are what create fertility itself on the earth. Plants and humans, animals, all things living require some measure and balance between water and sunlight, fire and coolness. It's almost like a microcosm for the seasons themselves. This contrast between the cool, the deep, the underground, and the wet, and the hot and high and dry and ephemeral, the former being the characteristics of wintertime, deep, dark, underground, cold, and the latter being the characteristics of the summertime, openness, light, dryness and heights. That's all I have to share about the characteristics of the month of June in folklore, paganism, and reconstructed Indo-European thought and religion for today. I'll leave you with some suggestions of how you might apply this folklore for yourself wherever you are on this earth at this moment. First of all, I would encourage you to relish contact with the sun. You might feel it surrounding you and nourishing the land, the soil, the earth, all of the leaves, animals, water, etc. as if it were like a parent, because it is the source of all life on earth. You can reflect on those Lithuanian words if you like. 
the earth as being everything under the sun, which is also an expression in English, I suppose, or the sun as humankind's mother. You might, at this time of year, immerse yourself in a body of water with these ideas in mind, with the intention of purifying yourself after a long springtime of anticipation of summertime and harvest. You might even wait until midsummer to do that if you haven't been swimming outside already and observe how water is in the beginning of June. Are there any qualities of water in early June that suggest something of the presence of the dead themselves? You might consider where this dynamic came from in Irish and Slavic folklore between early June and late June and the purification rituals that are so old we don't totally understand where they came from. I would encourage you to listen to the playlist that I've made for this month. Every month with the Almanac, I typically make a playlist, and so I share it in the show notes. It's there now, and it's on Spotify. I encourage you to listen to the songs in the playlist, and of course the ones in this episode, and choose one that really stands out to you, really touches you, or makes you feel something, makes you feel the vibe of this season. And you can either try to find the lyrics to it online and learn it, or at least a section of it. Or you could get creative and take a section of the song and write your own words in English, if that's the only language that you have, or your own language, that communicate what matters to you about this holiday and how you might be celebrating it yourself this month. I'd encourage you to light a bonfire if it's possible, safe and legal where you are right now. And if you can, around the summer solstice, stay up late, wake up early, or stay up all night to be with that extreme end of this cycle of the sun, where in some places it doesn't leave us at all, and in others it leaves for just a short time. And when you wake in the morning, go find some dew and wash your face, or your whole body if you like, in it. And this is another potent time to do this bathing purification ritual, which I'm not sure if I mentioned, but was typically done at dawn. Immersing yourself in cool, fresh water out of doors to welcome this new cycle of the sun, fresh as a newborn babe, so to speak. Of course, I would encourage people to make flower wreaths or other leaf wreaths, depending on where you are and what trees are sacred to you and to wear them for the celebration. And if you like, float them on some water, or you could hang them from a tree. There are various expressions of this tradition all over Europe. You can look up the regional tradition that interests you most, see what people are doing, where you're from, are the wreaths used for divination or not? How are they disposed of? What do you do with them? And what might it mean? I've also included three or four articles in the show notes that I used to create this episode. I've referred to a couple of them, but they are fascinating and they are so rich in information that I can only touch the surface of what I learned from them and what they hold. So I've linked those in the show notes. If something interested you and you look into the show notes and you see the title of the article, just check it out, <laughs> read it, because there's nothing more inspiring 
about these traditional holidays, for me anyway, than learning about them, learning all of the examples, all of the variety and richness that's available in the body of European tradition. You can also listen to my previous episode about Midsummer called Midsummer Solstice on Fair Folk Podcast, and I'll link that in the show notes as well for you. I hope you feel well-equipped with plentiful music, tradition, and inspiration for how you might spend this month in awareness of the amazing bounty of sunlight and greenery and the approaching wonder of the harvest season, which is much of what is anticipated in this holiday with its mixed pagan, Christian, and reconstructed pagan origins. I want to say thank you again to all of the incredible artists whose music appeared in this episode. Please visit the show notes and purchase it directly from the artists if you like it. I also want to say thank you to Sylvia Woods for her wonderful song Forest March, which is the intro theme to Fair Folk. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you thoroughly enjoy some moments of this month, which is one of my favorite of all the year. Soak up some sun, touch some shining waters, and I'll talk to you very soon.